don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And uh, I've got an amazing guest for you today, Professor Agnes Collard. She is a professor at uh, philosophy at the University of Chicago. And we talk about the philosophy of anger in this episode. And uh, her thinking completely flipped everything I ever thought I knew about this all too familiar emotion on its head. And uh, we recorded this episode back in early February before I knew that I would be uh, in quarantine, spending lots of time with, uh, with my husband. And I imagine a lot of other people are too. So in a lot of ways, um, all stuck at close quarters, feeling um, all the feelings we're having from all the huge changes in our world today. I'd say this episode is even more relevant than when we recorded it. Uh, and it's, it's really about some important issues, and I'm excited for you to give a listen. So I hope everyone is keeping safe out there in the epidemic and the pandemic times. And uh, without further ado, here is Professor Agnes Collard. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to be talking about anger. Are you ready? Yes. So you wrote uh, a piece in the Boston Review all about the philosophy of anger. And it turns out anger has been an emotion that has... Um, uh, people haven't known what to do with it for a really long time. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, anger and how it's been taken up philosophically for, I guess, millennia? Yeah, I guess there are sort of roughly speaking two camps, right? There are there's sort of um, the camp of philosophers, um, let's say they trace back to the Stoics, who find anger to be sort of dangerous, interpersonally disruptive, and basically something that we should be trying to get rid of, trying to, like if you could imagine a psychological scalpel that you could take and just cut something out of you, they would say, cut the anger out of you. Um, and they just, they see basically no upside to anger. They notice that people who are angry, um, like are just not the most kind of productive and helpful people. Um, and anger doesn't tend to lead to an um, kind of increase in kind of benefits and happiness for people. So they're like, let's try to live without that. And then there's um, the other the other side um, are philosophers who I, I call this, I think in the piece, sort of the sentimentalist tradition that's, um, you know, Adam Smith, the sort of British moral sentimentalist, Adam Smith and David Hume and Hutchinson. Um, these are people who thought that actually um, our whole sort of moral program so like what it means for me to be a moral creature is that I have certain moral responses and reactions to the world. And anger is one of those. And in fact, maybe the most important one, right? So they thought that you can't eliminate anger. If you eliminate my anger, you actually eliminate my moral sensibility. You eliminate my ability to tell right from wrong. You know, they want to say kind of exalt and glorify anger as kind of the, um, the home of human morality. And you also bring in um, some Buddhist thinking as well, like Santideva, um, the Buddhist scholar who I guess agrees a lot with the Stoics. Um, yeah, right. And I hear this one a lot, um, you know, from people who are trying to be happier that, you know, they really struggle with uh, anger. And um, I guess the first question for you is, which side is right? <laughs> I don't think either side is right. <laughs> And I, but I, but the reason why neither side is right is actually that I think that there's um, a shared assumption that they're both making, and the shared assumption is sort of that there's a a purified state that's possible. Um, the, the main, the big difference between the sides is whether we call that purified state anger or not. But um, roughly speaking, it refers to the same thing. And this purified state would be um, like a state of, you know caring about morality and caring about moral responsibility and moral codes without being prone to the excesses of anger. So without being prone to say grudges and um, violence and revenge, right? And so 
the sentimentalists are sort of aware of these dangers of anger, right? And they, what they want to say is like, yeah, sure, there are bad cases of anger. There are bad instances of it. It can be mis, sort of misused, misfelt. It can show up at the wrong times, wrong places, whatever. But when you, when you do it right, when you do it correctly, then it's a mechanism of moral accountability. Um, and they even um, have like special language for the kind of anger that's, that's operating correctly. Um, they call it like indignation or resentment. And the idea is that's not, that's not garden variety anger. It's not rage. Um, it's not irrational, right? It's kind of principled anger, you might say, right? And on the sort of stoic side, you have something similar where there's this idea of like, you know, well, Martha Nussbaum say has, this, she calls it transition anger, but it's not really anger. Um, it's just an apprehension of something as morally outrageous without having any tendency to get angry about it, so to speak. But the idea would be, look, you can um, uphold the moral system and the moral ideal without getting angry. And so the thing that I really disagree with both sides about is the idea that this kind of purified state, which we may call anger or not, depending on which side we're on, exists. So I think in a way, like, so that's what they're both wrong about. And I guess um, if I want to say, I think they're also both right about something. <laughs> like, the sort of Stoics are right about just how um, how destructive anger is. And I think that the sentimentalists are right about how central it is to our moral sensibility. There, there isn't a kind of um, like escape hatch where we can get the benefits of both sides by um, clinging to some kind of purified state of anger. Um, I think there's just something something kind of destructive and vengeful about how we uphold our own moral code. So can you actually dig a little bit into that? Because I think it's really interesting and something I've not heard before. You asked this really um, question that made me think a lot of, what if we humans do morality by way of vengeful grudges? Now, I'd always looked at you know my vengeful grudges as being pretty destructive and wrong, and I'd be ashamed of them. Uh, can you, so you could just tell me, how does that work? Like, How would a vengeful grudge have a part to play in my sense of right and wrong and in morality. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny because this, this idea, um, I started thinking about this topic like 10 years ago when I was teaching the Iliad for the first time. And in the Iliad, Achilles gets really mad at Agamemnon um, for the two of them have this fight. And Achilles is totally, just totally beside himself with rage. And he goes off and he refuses to fight. And he just sulks for like most of the books of the Iliad. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm teaching this to students, right? And there's like this, there's like this part in like, I think it's book nine of the Iliad where like a bunch of people come to Achilles and they're like, Achilles, come on, stop being so angry. Just get over it. Right. And we were sort of discussing it in the class and like people were saying how Achilles was being unreasonable and how like nothing anyone said would change his mind. And I realized like that there actually was no reason for Achilles to change his mind. Like he was being totally reasonable. Like he, he was, he was, the, he's the very picture of just like um, irrational rage. Um, the, the, the Achilles, the, the Iliad, it starts with um, the, it's, you know, sing muse, a goddess, it says, sing of Manus, which is like just, you know, this cr crazy rage, right? Tell the story of this crazy rage, and that's the rage of Achilles. And, but this crazy rage that Achilles had was just completely reasonable because the thing he was angry about was the fact that Agamemnon stole his girlfriend. And Agamemnon's like, fine, I'll give her back, right? But the thing is, it doesn't change the fact that he stole her, right? And that's what he was angry about. He wasn't angry about the fact that Agamemnon wasn't giving her back. He was angry about the fact that Agamemnon stole her. And that's what it is to have a kind of principled anger, right? Is that there was something that was done in the past that was wrong. And the world, the way the world is, diverges from the way the world should be. Um, or rather, I mean, it, it was usually it's in the past, right? So, you know, the way the world was diverge from the way the world should have been and if you're if you're angry in a principled way then that's what you're angry about you're angry about that gap between let's say the normative facts and the actual facts right and there is nothing that can change that ever not even like interestingly i think not even a time machine <laughs> so all right um, all right 
I, I think I get it. Like, I don't want to live in a world where it's just okay for a king to steal the people I love away from me uh, for sex or for money or for whatever reason he might have. That seems um, a reason to be angry, a reason to be, you know, that, that that's a moral outrage. Right. But everyone wanted him to forgive because otherwise they're not united. And I'm like, can we yeah, be both moral and forgiving? Or are those things totally at odds and your points about anger? Good. I mean, so the thing that my, that my piece doesn't touch on at all is forgiveness, <laughs> right? Like what would, um, what is forgiveness, right? What does it amount to? Because um, one thing that is interesting, right, is that we would want to distinguish, say, between not getting angry in the first place and forgiveness, right? And, you know, um, if I'm right that anger involves a kind of um, moral compromise, being morally compromised in a certain way, because it involves indulging in vengeful grudges, right, then you have some reason to limit your own getting angry, right? But then there's the second question that enters, and this is what I don't touch on in the piece. Um, once you are angry, what would it take for you to have a reason to forgive? Um, and which is to say, to sort of like set aside your anger. And I guess I think the one thing that, you know, is not going to happen is that the problem is solved, right? The thing that you're angry about isn't ever going to be solved or resolved. It can't be. It just doesn't have that structure, right? Um, I guess I think that what can happen is that you can in some way, like, so to speak, induce in yourself the same state that you would have had if you had chosen not to get angry about it in the first place, right? So it's almost like, um, in some way, decide not to be angry, which is to say, you can decide not to attend to that reason. You still have a reason to be angry, right? But, you know, you can decide not to pay attention to that, not to let that dominate who you are and your psychology, and not to let that be the focus of your life. Um, now, there's a question, can you do that without morally compromising yourself? Yeah, you actually used I, um, a stronger term in the paper, which I want to bring in here, which is moral yeah. corruption, that you say anger yeah. is a kind of moral corruption. And you have evidence for that, which I think all of us have seen. We've, we do things we, what we regret when we're angry, from saying something to someone we love that we regret, to um, you know overdoing the vengeance or what have you. Like, this, this happens. So um, when is some moral corruption, you know, opening yourself up to that the right choice? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we don't choose to get angry at all. We the, if choice comes in, it might come in in limiting how angry we let ourselves be. <laughs> um, um, sorry, there's actually a, the slight like exception would be that there's a fair amount of what you might call anger signaling that happens say on social media and stuff it's kind of fake anger that people sort of project precisely because anger is our way of projecting a moral sensibility right so if i say on social it's, it's much easier in social media because it's actually really pretty hard to fake anger in real life um, but it's easy to fake it online um so if I want to show you that I'm a morally good person online, I might like report that I'm very angry about some event, right? Um, and that's showing you that I morally condemn it, right? Um, there, I think you can choose to get angry, <laughs> but that's because you're not really angry. You're choosing to signal something. You're choosing to represent, um, you're in fact trying to represent your own moral character by way of this kind of um, anger. But I think that when, Wait, yeah, this sorry, seems like a big and important point. Are you saying that the reason social media can get so toxic and angry is people's need to um, project like a moral brand out into the world? Yeah, I think that, they're not really uh, that angry. Right. So I think and, and it, um, I think that it's pretty hard for us on social media to see one another as human beings because <laughs> it doesn't look like a human being when all you see is like a tweet or something that doesn't you know even if it has their their photo I mean it's pretty important that tweets have a little picture of the person I think um but um so so we're constantly on social media we're constantly occupied with trying to look human to one another um trying to override all these like um signals that make us not look human to look human right and so it's like I have to like project humanity to you on social media 
And one of the ways that I might do that is to tell you, I have a moral code. I live by a moral code because basically only human beings live by moral codes, right? So um, I'm like teaching you that I'm a human by projecting the moral code and I'm projecting the moral code by getting angry about certain things. And that also allows us to coordinate over having the same moral code. And so I can like form a group of people who all have moral code, which is what we want from communities, right? We want communities of people who share a moral code. The way you might think about it is like how on stage, if you, especially like old kinds of theater, people would have to wear like really exaggerated makeup, right? So that you could see their faces um, because they're so far away, it's hard to see the face, right? Normally, if you and I are close to each other, you just see my face and you see where my mouth is and where my eyes are. But on a stage, I have to put like really exaggerated makeup for you to see those things. So you could think of social media as like, we need that exaggerated makeup to see people as human. And one way we do that is through this kind of faux anger, I think. So I don't think people really are nearly as angry as they represent themselves as being. It's like their, their mouths aren't nearly as red as they paint them to be on stage. Okay, so I've got a couple more questions about that. I know this mm -hmm. is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a very no well up in the world. So people are often angry online. And I think that makes sense because they want to project a humanity, a moral code, um, and yet the overall tone I often hear from people is disgust at all the anger they encounter on the internet. How can both those things be true, that we all come away disgusted by all the anger and the vitriol, and yet we need to project that to the world at the same time? Yeah, good. I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is, but are there, here's a couple different thoughts about that. So one of them is it could be like... Um, the loud restaurant problem, right? So if you and I are in a restaurant and it's getting louder, people are gonna start shouting um, and they're gonna raise their voices, right? And everyone's gonna be like, ow, why is everyone shouting? But they're shouting too. <laughs> um, so like there's, you're in a situation where you're always incentivized to keep doing the thing, but you're also the victim of the collective action of everybody else, right? Um, and um, I suspect that like the people who are upset about all the anger online are themselves not outliers in terms of being never getting angry online. Uh, it's the same people. I can um, concur so, that I've seen that. Right. So, so, so one thought there is just that it's like we don't have um, speaking in a different capacity when we speak as, so to speak, victims or recipients of all the anger, then it's like the collective anger that's acting on us versus when we're producing, we're just pretty, we're just raising our voice a little bit, right? Um, that's one thought. But the other thought is that, um, interestingly and weirdly, it's actually part of our moral code to reject anger, right? And so, it, like, that is part of what my piece is trying to bring out is that there's something, there's a kind of contradiction or tension here, right? That part of the way we do morality is through this thing that's, like, immoral, right? And it's, it's like, I haven't myself, I come to a kind of reckoning with that thought that I am satisfied with. But if that thought is true, then it would make sense that we both get angry and we reject anger, the anger of others as being immoral. And in fact, that both of those are ways of signaling our moral code. That's really interesting. I mean, that gets down to some of your points at the end that basically we don't get to be moral without outrage, which corrupts us. And basically you say we can't be good in a bad world that, you know, we either accept things that are outrageous um, to keep our chill about, I don't know, terrible things that are happening from um, people being locked up at the border to um, crimes being committed or whatever is outrageous today that we should be mad at. Um, right. Or we embrace the anger and we open ourselves up to uh, being vitriolic to people we care about or to each other or, you know. Um, so I'm curious, I think you're right, actually, that there is this interplay that you know, sometimes having too much chill about terrible things is the worst option. Um, I'm really curious, uh, as a person who has pointed out this paradox to me, what you do with your anger? Like, is there anyone in, like, especially around people you care about, where you really care about the relationship, but also in the world? Yeah, I would say um, it's almost the other way around. Like I select my relationships based on who can I productively get angry with? Because <laughs> I feel like 
Um, it's really, really different. Getting there's like. Okay, um, this is a new idea. So tell me, give me an example of you and someone else being productively angry at each other. Yeah. So like my like my husband and I like we have these like when we fight, it's like the the stake like the whole world is at stake and like everything is like hanging on the balance and like it's existential and it's kind of horrible but it's it's always totally sincere there's never any contempt or hatred or cynicism or irony we're always saying exactly what we mean and we're like like saying why like the other person has done something like evil and wrong and why we condemn it and like we're like arguing about like is this really the moral rule or not in like a in like a totally like direct and straightforward way and I would say it's probably the thing that I value most about him is that we can argue, we can fight in that particular way um, so that I can get angry at him and all of our energy is actually directed at like understanding the moral situation, um, even though it's like fully charged with anger. Like it's not it's not like at all calm. It's not at all detached. Um, um, but I think that's pretty rare. Like it's, it's it's pretty hard for me to find people I can do that with. I can actually sometimes do it with my kids, especially my middle son, um, who is very, very deeply empathetic and a very like, just like deeply naturally moral person, which I wouldn't have thought that was like a thing that you could be naturally moral, but he is. Question for you. Yeah. It sounds like you and your husband have access to a, like a really special amount of like emotional honesty with each other when you're angry and when you're fighting and that you appreciate that about each other. And I'm wondering, is that a skill or just chemistry? Like, how does how does that happen? I think that neither of us is at all inclined to defend ourselves against an accusation that we might, at some deeper level, worry is true about us, right? So, like, suppose I accuse you of something right now, right? You might just reflexively defend yourself, even though on some level in your mind, you might be like, maybe she's right about that, but I don't want to admit it to her, right? Um, and that's like very natural that like, even when other people make critical comments about us that we think are true, we don't just accept them. We like, we might, we might want to take it home and think about it, but we don't want to just face up to them of their being right, like right then and there. And um, I think that, that, so that's the thing that I think he and I, we never do that. Like I never, I never, like reject some criticism that he makes of me where I think to myself, maybe he's right, but I'm going to, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction or something like that. I, I would never do that. Uh, it would seem totally counterproductive to me to do that. Um, and why I think that we are both naturally like that with each other. That is, I don't think it's something we developed over time. I think it was there. In fact, I think um, it was there from the very beginning of our relationship. So I don't know that I would know how to develop it. It sounds like there is a thread there that if you can avoid defensiveness or basically minimizing like that impulse, and I've done it with my husband, and we're just like, he's angry, and I try to be like, don't be angry. There's really no cause. Really, it was like this, um, trying to like head off the anger, and that that right. itself um, stops you from having an honest conversation about something that's clearly generated deep feeling. Right. It's like people confuse being defensive with fighting back, where I see those as very, very different. Right. Um, fighting um, back so like, is emotional honesty. Yeah. Like getting it all out there in the open. Defensiveness is saying, you don't have a right to be angry. We aren't going to have this conversation. Exactly. That That's something people could do. Should, should they do it? Should we be, be more open to our anger, especially in an like, honest, like conversational way rather than trying to head it off before it happens? I mean, let me say that like I, two things about that. So one of them is I, um, I, in addition to having maybe somewhat idiosyncratic views about anger, I have idiosyncratic views about a lot of other things. And one of the other things I have idiosyncratic views about is advice. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in advice. Um, okay. I don't, I, um, so one of the things about like the sort of social media world that we live in is we also live in a podcast world and the podcast world involves a lot of advice, like a lot of like, you know, okay, so tell our listeners, like, how, you know, how should they live? What should they do? And like, I think that um, I, I mean, I, 
I, I wrote a column about this, about why sort of for principled philosophical reasons, I think that that doesn't actually make sense. That is, I don't think that people can be guided by my words. Um, not that nobody could ever under any circumstances, but that people couldn't under these circumstances. Um, that's a very abstract uh, answer to your question. Should people do this? I don't know what people should do. I, I'm um, going to challenge I, you there, actually, yeah, because please. you're writing about the philosophy of anger, which yeah. people have written about for thousands of years because we struggle with it so much. Right. And so if anyone takes an interest in your work at all, it's because we all have felt anger. It's a hard emotion to have to deal with. No one seems to have given us a satisfactory clean or uh, even productive way of channeling it. And we want to know what to do. And you're writing about that. You may not like have a three point like set of instructions for people, but you're, you're writing about the paradoxes of it. And it sounds like you're definitely at the very least saying, don't just do that. Don't try to minimize it or uh, say that it's always bad, like uh, the Stoics or the Buddhists. Uh, don't um, try to say that uh, it's always productive and good, like some of these other people. It, it, it sounds like you have a position, and that a position good. in this case has to be, in some ways, advice. Good. So um, I think that's a great point. So first of all, I definitely think people can learn from reading my piece, and I even think it could be transformative for their lives. So I'm not actually denying that I could help people, that this philosophical work could help people, but I take advice to be something um, much, much narrower than that. So you know, the thing that I think could happen, like the thing that has happened to me from reading philosophy is like, there can be something in my life where it's kind of like this knot that I don't know how to unravel. And I'm looking at my life and it's like this, this puzzle. Um, and, and I could read things and think about it and sort of the, the knot starts to become like, you know, just more easier to manage. And um, I can start to understand like what I've been doing and how I've been almost like describing my life in contradictory terms, but now I can do a little bit less of that or something like that. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff we can do with that. And then I can like stop saying a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense. Like, I think we can stop saying things like, you know, let's purify our anger. Right. And I think we shouldn't say those things because they don't make sense. Um, so I think it's almost like um, if I'm like, if I'm going to give people advice, they're like, um, should I ever murder anyone? And my answer would be, do not murder people. Okay, I would give you that advice. Do not murder people. Um, but that's probably because murder is defined as immoral killing, right? So I can very, I can comfortably tell you not to murder people because I can tell you not to do immoral things ever. You should never do anything immoral, right? But if you want to know, should I ever kill anyone? Then I'll say, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, it might depend on the circumstances. Like, I, I kind of hope you don't end up in circumstances where that's the right thing to do, but I don't feel sure that you couldn't possibly end up in circumstances where that was the right thing to do, right? So um, there's a certain kind of advice I can give you. I can give you advice of the form, don't murder, right? And I can also give you advice of the form, like do good things or do moral things, but that's trivial advice. And so if we sort of hear defensiveness as um, mismanagement of the anger um, dynamic, right? If that's sort of how we're defining defensiveness, then I'm like, yeah, don't be defensive, right? But if we're hearing it as a more sort of a thicker psychological concept that doesn't have built into it this normative idea that you're screwing something up, um, like, 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 should you never say to the person who's trying to argue with you, you know what, I don't want to have this fight right now. No, I don't, I don't think I can advise people that they should never say that. Like, should they say, like, I don't really, you know, should they never say, I don't really think there's anything of substance here or like, whatever. Like, no, I think those are all statements that might fit in a given context, right? Um, so I can certainly describe the good case in, uh, in terms that I think are true, but I don't think of that as action guiding advice. And I think someone could read my column and could derive from it some action guiding um, principles for themselves, depending on what they had been tending to screw up about anger. But I don't think I could predict what those are without knowing them. I like that answer. Uh, I will take it. Uh, however, I do think our culture does have a set of biases against anger and having it out that makes defensiveness and minimization of anger something people go to almost first, kind of like, yeah. you know, the Oprah book club issue of like, 
before we can even be angry, we have to talk about forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if we like without giving anyone prescriptive, like one, two, like in every case, don't be defensive or don't like do this. But like what what kinds of angry experiences could we be productively more open to uh, in your sort of system or are, what kind of angry experiences are you more open to, I should say? Yeah, good. I mean, so one thing that I've just learned from personal experience is that at the very least, I am very bad at um, trying to get somebody who is by nature quite defensive to be less defensive. Like, so you might think, look at all this philosophy I do and look at this theory that I have and everything, right? And I like, I've recently been in a kind of protracted battle with somebody who's unbelievably defensive and who sort of just won't confront anything. And like, no matter what I do, that doesn't, it doesn't change anything about that person and that person's psychology. So, um, you know, at like, a, like it, that's a lesson for me of like, uh, it's not a lesson that sometimes you can't, it's just a lesson that I haven't in, in this particular case. Um, so if you want, you know, tips on how to do that, I'm the wrong person because I don't know how to do it. Um, but more generally, I guess what I would say is that I see in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases in which I uh, am confronted by the unwillingness to be angry, there's an element of cowardice into, to it. It's like an ethical problem. Like, and so I don't think it's just bias in our society. Um, I think it's like we kind of suck as people. <laughs> and so we like avoid doing things that are scary. And like the fear, the, the, the anger of other people coming back at us is something that we're very afraid of. And so like we just need to be braver um, is one like and, and so like that's why people get angry on social media because it's not scary on social media right or way way less scary because you're not really confronted with the angry person before you um, and so it requires a lot less courage to get angry on social media um, so yeah I, t I see it as often a problem of courage hey Ian do you have hey, a favorite uh, We Croak quote for us tonight? Oh, I do. I have a pretty fun one from Alexander Hamilton. I have thought it my duty to exhibit things as they are, not as they ought to be. Hey, where, where'd that quote come from, Ian? Is that, is that a new one? Actually, I'm so glad you asked, Hansa. So this is one of the thousand quotes, the biggest database we've ever put into the WeCroak app, and it's part of our amazing new um, Leap monthly subscription. And this and 999 other quotes um, that you did such an amazing job picking out, Hansa, I think have really, really enhanced the experience. So few repeats and a whole bunch of new perspectives on our impermanence. Uh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. It was uh, quite the process uh, <laughs> going through uh, so much text to find quotes that I thought everyone would love. Uh, so yeah, that, that is the big news with the WeCroak app. If uh, that's something that you're enjoying, it is now free for anyone to try. And for the people who love it, uh, we're offering more uh, a database of over a thousand quotes and weekly challenges and we're building more cool stuff. So uh, that membership will go into supporting, you know, growing what we offer for that, like, you know, that bracing, um, goosebumpy mindfulness that only uh, mortality and temporary nature can bring us. Absolutely. And obviously we're back with more episodes of the We Croak podcast. We love doing these and are so happy to have another bunch of them um, queued up for you coming out every week. And now back to the conversation. Yeah, it, it occurs to me that in the example of, you know, the, the partner, the husband, the wife, that it takes a lot of trust to be angry in a healthy way, or it takes a lot of like distance, like you're hiding behind a screen. Right. <laughs> you haven't seen that person since high school. It doesn't matter if they hate you forever right. um, and you can yell at them uh, online, but to actually own the honesty of anger you kind of need someone that you know at least a little bit or trust at least a little bit that it's likely they'll forgive you eventually 
uh, and that they won't take that anger to a place you can't go with them, such as physical violence or uh, other kinds of abuse, emotional or otherwise. Right. It's almost so one of the things I talk about in the piece is that one of the sort of um, sort of the phenomenology of anger, what it feels like to be angry. Something that I haven't heard people talk about enough, I think, is this the thing I call adversarial intimacy. So like when you're angry with someone, you're you pretend like you don't care about them and they're the last person in the world you're interested in, but you're totally obsessed with them. Like you're obsessed with the people that you're angry at. You you think about them all the time. You like imagine stuff you might say to them. You, um, you know, make little speeches like, and, and you're always the winner in these little speeches, right? <laughs> um, and you, you plot whatever revenge. You might not think of it as revenge. You might just think of it as like, well, fine, then I won't do, you know, then I'll leave the dishes in the sink or whatever, right? But that's revenge of a kind. Um, you think of hurtful things you might say to them. You you, you you start to like kind of remodel your mental landscape so that it's just all about them. And I think that that requires in a way a lot of trust in that like if I'm going to let myself get angry at someone, I'm going to become like, you know, we're going to become embroiled in this adversarially intimate relation. And I don't necessarily want that with just anyone, right? Um, so that, that's, that's part of the, the trust. Yes, there's the trust issue of like it, um, it, it escalating to violence, but I think even if it doesn't escalate to violence, it's almost like, you know, am I willing to subject my mind to this right now with you or something like that? Like that's, that it's a lot to ask. Yeah. It actually reminds me of a fight that I had with my husband a couple of years ago mm-hmm. where he had gotten up to give his seat to uh, a pregnant woman on the subway and some like strong able-bodied man with headphones in just sort of like as he's doing that just like bum rushes into that seat and sits down Mm -hmm. uh my husband gets angry he starts yelling at them they start yelling back it turns into a full-scale fight uh my husband was absolutely right that person had behaved abominably uh, I was so angry at him for getting in a fight with someone on the subway, which to me seems like entirely unsafe behavior because, um, you know, someone who demands respect on a subway or just behaves that way in a subway, you don't yeah. know what they're going to do. They might behave violently. They could have a knife. They could have a gun. You just don't know. Right. Um, so there wasn't, I thought it was irresponsible to pick, to have a, any fight with someone you, you don't trust. And he was like, but that was morally outrageous. Right. We were both completely right, I think. Right. It's just a matter of priorities. Right, exactly. It, and and, it, and that's an interesting case, right, where it, it kind of mirrors your question about people getting angry online and then getting angry about getting angry online. <laughs> because for both of you, there was a kind of um, moral question here at stake, right? And for him, it was... Um, look, I have to be, I have to get angry about this. Otherwise I'm acquiescing in an injustice, right? And for you, it's like, no, getting angry about this is itself an injustice because it is reckless um, and not taking enough thought for the value of preserving your safety. Yeah, basically, uh, that is the entire fight. And I'm realizing now, I mean, it's a long time ago, I think passions have cooled, but it's just, you know, there's no advice you can give here. It's just uh, you make the call in the moment about what's more important, the um, safety or the moral outrage that happened. Right. And part of what's interesting, right, is, yes, you make the call in the moment, right? Like, so your husband made the call and then but then that's it's not what anger means is it's not necessarily over. Right. You guys still had to adjudicate that later where you're like, why did you get so angry? And he's like, um, that was the right thing to do. Right. And so there's an interesting way in which anger, the, the not not anger itself, but the working out of anger allows us to actually kind of um, deliberate about the moral situation in retrospect. Right. And that's the thing I was sort of describing with my husband, where it's like, yeah, you make the call, but that doesn't mean it's over because you can still fight about it um, in that sort of ongoing time. And, and that means like you can you still get a kind of chance to keep thinking practically about things that happened in the past. And that's one of the functions of anger, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting uh, because it's basically talking about our values. Anger is a way that we adjudicate and tell each other 
what's most important to us? Yeah. Is it, uh, you know, that we're moral and just in a public place like a subway, even if it puts our own bodies at risk? Or is it, you know, making sure that the people we care about most are safe? You know, these are things we're declaring to each other. And if we don't let ourselves have that anger, we really don't know what the people who are close to us value most. Exactly. And it's like, you might have thought that you could just have a conversation, like a kind of calm philosophical conversation about this or something. But like, I, this is where I think the sentimentalists have a point, which is that the, you know, our kind of um, moral code is housed in our emotions. And so the fact that I get emotional about it is how I kind of both convey to you and to myself that something really matters to me, that it's really significant to me. And so like the the ability to have the fight is the ability to have the conversation about it. Wow, I know you say you're against advice, but I'm looking at anger totally different as I talk to you. And I really <laughs> like this view. Well, you're allowed to look at it differently. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's absolutely uh, awesome. So, okay, let's talk about other kinds of anger. Uh, we talked about online anger sort of abstractly, yeah. but you know, obviously we are living in very polarized times. Uh, when there's a lot of anger at abstract people who live in other states or, you know, are different ideas about the world or, um, you know, this week, uh, you know, there was a president, you know, not impeached or not acquitted of his impeachment. Uh, and, you know, there, it feels sometimes like people are uh, really angry at each other and it's not constructive at all. And we're not really telling each other where our values are. It's just like ugly most of the time. And I'm wondering what, if anything, from the interpersonal things we were just talking about, can we look at in terms of our anger in politics, in the world, in a larger sense? I don't know. I suppose it's an empirical question, and I just don't know the data as to whether it's really true that we're more polarized than we ever were. Here are some confounding factors. Um, one of them is um, we might know, we might be aware of polarization more than we were in the past because of social media. Another confounding factor is it might have been true in the past that there were like very many axes of polarization, right? So like religion and geography and race and um, gender and sexual orientation and economics or like uh, generational divides, right? And maybe it's true now. I don't know. This would have to be, you know, that, that a lot of line up. Line I don't up. think it actually matters whether it was more true in the past or more true now. I'm more mm -hmm. asking, what do we do with that kind of anger? Right. How do we look at it? Right. So, like, I mean, one one way to look at it is that polarization is a form of organization, right? So, um, like, suppose you just have like a whole bunch of people, right? If the, once they're polarized, you've organized them into two groups, the people that think X and the people that think not X, right? And in principle, that doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. The question is whether there's any possibility for those two people to have a productive conversation, because if they could, right, if they could have a good fight about it, that might be a really good way to figure out whether X or not. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's pretty hard when what you have are sort of like, not individuals, but groups. Like, in a way, there's a question, how do groups fight? Like, how does one group fight another group besides for a war or something, right? Besides for, like, you can have violence there, you physical violence, you can have one group against another. But kind of in a, like, if we're trying to imagine the analog of the kind of emotional fight, and then we're thinking about a group, it's really, really hard to think about how that could possibly go. And honestly, I think we haven't figured it out yet. That is, I think that social media creates maybe the possibility for doing that, but we haven't actually worked it out how to do it. And what tends to happen instead of real fights or real confrontations is a lot of like people, you know, amassing supporters to their side. And so they're like, there's this sense of like the one group and the other group. And then there's also this sense of like, there's these kind of scornful comments that are thrown out but it's all super, super defensive in the sense that I was articulating earlier in that like there's no possibility that the other person is just going to show you that you're wrong about something that's not even on the table, right? And so what it really is is kind of like this coalition building, right? 
It's like the two sides are less interested in fighting than they are in building their armies, almost like for a future fight that might never even come. And that might be because they don't know how to fight. Like, I mean, people who are defensive, I think often are just people who don't know how to fight, right? And maybe we're like super, super defensive because we have no idea how the how these how these sort of um, virtual army they're supposed to fight each other. Yeah, because you know when you're fighting with a spouse or a trusted friend, there's an emotional honesty that you can get to that's important. But generally, in like political knife fights, as it were, it's a lot of the moral corruption of anger, where it's personal attacks. It's not honest. It's low blows. People will say things they know aren't true for uh, political points, that that kind of behavior that really debases people. Right. And and I suppose, like, in my way of thinking, all of that is just not really fighting. They're they're actually refraining from fighting. Um, what they're doing is being defensive. Right. So they're doing things that um, protect themselves um, in some ways from full engagement and maybe there, maybe it's just very, very hard to see any alternative to that when you have fighting at the group level. Wow. Um, well, you heard it here first. Our problem with polarized politics is actually that we don't fight enough. <laughs> yeah. Or not the real fighting, that it's defensiveness, that it's coalition building, that's yeah. talking past each other. We're not actually trying to fight. We're not trying to let our anger like at each other happen. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, just if I'm thinking about sort of the analogs to those things, the analogs to the name calling and et cetera, right, of the bad political behavior that you were describing, like, I can imagine those in the interpersonal case. And those are all the things that I would have called defensiveness and not really fighting. So let's say I wanted to really fight, you know, and take a stand on something. And I was a congressperson or a senator or something like that. What what could I do to just do it differently, to really fight and be vulnerable but angry and not just defensive and coalition building like what, what would that even look like yeah so like let's use the interpersonal case as a model it would involve making sincere moral judgments right where it's like this thing that you did was evil and wrong okay um or or this principle that you want us to uphold or whatever is wrong like that is like saying personal attacks on you are going to be they're just going to be too small potatoes like you have to go for the the big thing which is like that their whole principle and mode of living is like evil and wrong so we, we, we'd want to hear more of that um and i look i think that you know trump inspires a lot of the bad kind of anger because he's it's very easy to create personal attacks right and um, he doesn't seem to uphold really any principles. He doesn't state principles. Um, and so it becomes almost impossible to like um, to have the kind of principled fight, right? Um, but yeah, I think that it would be, that, that, you know, he would be an example of sort of extreme defensiveness, right? Um, and I think that um, we would need to see, I don't know, the kinds of things that, like when you really hit like something very deep in a fight, for me, it'll be things like, you're violating my dignity. The thing that you're doing is violating my dignity. And you're trying to steal from me. Like, you're trying to steal something that I'm owed. And, you know, you're, you're doing things to me that you would never accept for me to do to you. And like, those are sorts of, those are the sorts of speech acts, right? Um, and I think being willing to say those sorts of things to one another that 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 would be what it would sound like, but we would have to be at the group level. And I'm not sure how those things sound at the group level. I don't think we've ever tried to say them. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd know it when I see it, like that sort of, how would a, I'm kind of imagining it, although I had, you don't see it in the news or anything very often of those kinds of like, this is what's happening and this is how it hurts me. You know, those sort of vulnerable statements or hurts the people right. I care about. Um, and I need you to see that and know that and acknowledge that, um, even though showing my hurt can feel vulnerable. And maybe that's why we so rarely see it, is there isn't that kind of trust between people on different sides of issues. Yeah, but I also think that, like, the language of hurt and vulnerability, there's a danger there of veering into passive aggressiveness. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And so I think that it really has to be moral language, if you see what I mean. Like, mm -hmm. not just that you hurt me, but you wronged me. Like, I have a claim against you that you not behave in that way. 
and um, I have, you know, the right to demand of you that you not behave in that way, et cetera. I think that's very different language from the language of you hurt me and um, uh, I'm like suffering because of you. I'm, that, that, I mean, the, the second thing is also relevant often to fighting. I'm just saying that um, translating all of the fighting into that second thing is sort of the hallmark of passive aggressiveness. Um, it's sort of the unwillingness to take a moral stand and instead just fully taking like a victim stand. Um, but I think that the other problem that I'm realizing with the group fighting is that there's a lot of like um, proxy moralizing, right? So so that, that that's kind of problematic. So like if I'm fighting with my husband, like I'm going to be angry at something he did to me or, you know, he'll be angry at something I did or whatever, right? Um, but like in the in the case of like, you know, politics, it's sort of, it's not exactly that the one group has attacked or hurt the other group, right? Quite often, they're both saying, like, we're actually the champions of the people, and we're both, you know, we're the true, um, you know, lovers of the people or something like that. Um, and so they're sort of vying for a title almost more than anything else. And then it's pretty hard to see, like, how the fight is going to work on principled grounds. Like, like you know, in an election, it's almost like, well, what people want is like to win something, right? And that's very, very different from having a fight because a fight is not productive and forward-looking in that sort of way. It's not like there's something I want, like, you know, to, um, to secure in order to advance my self-interest. If I think about the fight in that way, I'll never have an honest fight. Those are really interesting points. It sounds like there's ways in which the interpersonal, person to person, uh, we can see more about these other kinds of angers in it, but we haven't quite solved it. Uh, Anyway, Agnes, this has been, we've been talking for about an hour. I think you're really brilliant on these issues, and I'm really hoping you write a book about anger, because I want to read it. (laughs) Thanks. And I invited you on because I thought your articles were so good. Um, And I just want to say thank you. I thought... Um, what to do with our anger, even how to look at it is one of the most vexing issues that people face. Uh, And uh, people have been vexed by it for millennia, as you point out. And I think you bring a really fresh perspective that could be really helpful. So thank you. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you again, Professor Agnes Collard from the University of Chicago for joining us. We hope you all can go out there and find people that you could be productively angry with. And for the foreseeable future, we will be doing weekly episodes. So we hope you'll join us. Until next time.